0: to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. It's fair to say that these days, social media plays a very significant role in many of our lives. As its use has exploded over the last couple of decades, it has, of course, given rise to substantial concerns to do with individuals' privacy in the ever-expanding online world. One phenomenon that social media has encouraged is sharenting, the practice of sharing online one's experiences of parenting. Now we have a generation of children growing up whose lives have been documented online since birth, and evidence is starting to emerge that some of those children are not particularly happy with their parents for having done this. Last year, Gwyneth Paltrow's daughter Apple very publicly admonished her mother on social media for sharing a picture of her without her permission, reminding the Hollywood star that we have talked about this. Joining me to discuss Generation Tagged is Dr. Emma Nottingham of the University of Winchester, who's been conducting research into children being thrust into the social media world for several years. Hi, Emma. Hello. Perhaps I could uh, start by inviting you to just outline the research that you've been doing over the last few years.
1: Yes, of course. So um, I work. Um, at the University of Winchester, and we're conducting a uh, research at the moment um, under our research centre, the Centre of Information Rights, um, around um, issues raised by share um, and particularly concerning aspects such as um, the child's right to privacy, um, also impacts that may occur to the child in the future that isn't necessarily thought about at the time um, of maybe engaging with social media interaction. Um, So uh, within the project uh, we have coined the term Generation Tagged. So Generation Tagged is uh, referring to the child generation that have grown up where social media and digital media has been a normal part of day-to-day life so they don't know any different that's always been a part of the society that they have lived in and we identify generation tagged as being particularly vulnerable
0: and what is it about them that makes them vulnerable
1: it's particularly the younger um, members of generation tags that we are most concerned about because it's much more difficult for them to exercise a voice um, it's still concerning for uh, teenagers, such as you mentioned Gwyneth Paltrow's daughter, but what she could do is she could vocalise her dissatisfaction. Um, the younger children who are maybe young babies, they can't talk, um, or perhaps five, six-year-olds who are too young to really understand that there's any dangers or any implications for them or really they might not even understand the concept of digital media or social media. And really, they might not even know that their parents are putting information about them out there. It's those members that have this particular vulnerability. So that could be to do with um, their own reasonable expectations of privacy. So their own rights to privacy, which are quite unclear. um, And... The current legal framework and ethical framework with regards to privacy um, doesn't seem to be particularly um, good at protecting children in this situation. Uh, The laws around that weren't really designed with this in mind. And it's very much um, attached to the way the parent behaves. So if the parents behave in such a way that's quite Um, exposing, then the child has a much lower reasonable expectation of privacy. So as part of our research, we suggest that children need to have their own independent, reasonable expectation of privacy. There's also a lot of other concerns, um, such as uh, digital kidnapping, um, which is the idea that Children's information is being collected um, and then being harvested and can then be used at some point in the future. So there have been reports that information such as birthdays or particular um, life milestones or first day at school, things like that, they, they it gives away a lot of information about that child. So You can even work out where someone lives purely through what might be quite innocent um, sharing on social media. Um, A lot of parents do this because they are, are proud. It's also the kind of modern day photo album, really. It's a way of keeping in touch with family and friends. So it's often done very innocently on the parents' part. But all that information, once it's out there, can be collected. And it has been reported that when these children turn 18, then there could be perhaps fraudulent activity going on. So maybe bank accounts opened in their name or their identity stolen once they get to um, the age of 18. Um, Also, there's just emotional harm possible maybe to the child. Um, And even if a child did give their consent, they don't necessarily know or have considered that there might be any negative consequences. So, in our research, it's not just about what are the present harms, it's actually a lot about the future harm. So, that could be um, an emotional harm about how would that child feel um, when they're an adult and think, hang on a minute, did I really want all that information out there without me knowing that it was happening?
0: Do we have evidence of? children actively objecting to this and if we do at what sort of age are we starting to see that evidence emerge
1: at the moment there's still quite little evidence around this mainly because the children that are affected by this this issue are still children Um, I think once these children become adults, um, that's when it will be discussed a bit more. Um, Whilst they're still children, there's not a lot that they can do. And it's also about the fact that society as a whole is still in very early stages about trying to understand the implications of social media. Um, So even parents who are, engaging in the practice of sharing um aren't necessarily aware themselves that there are any dangers because social media has become very, very integrated within our day-to-day lives and it seems very, very ordinary and um very normal to to use that and to upload pictures of your children or to discuss things with your friends on there is is very much part of our lives and there isn't a lot of information about the negativities so a lot more research needs to be done um, to find out what these possible harms are and then once we have that research it then needs to be put out there to society and adults need to be educated and society as a whole needs to be educated as to what these possible dangers are and have some awareness about the fact that we're creating these cultural norms. So within our research, we've explored the fact that in the offline world, there's quite a lot of protection for children. Uh, so in a lot of children's light, children's rights um, literature and research, Um, Concepts such as the welfare of the child or the best interests of the child seem to underpin a lot of how um, the laws and the social norms are dictated. Whereas when we get to the online world, a lot of those concepts don't seem to apply. Um, We don't seem to put the child first in the online world like we do in the offline world. Within the research that we have undertaken at the Centre of Information Rights, we've explored how different the regulations in the online world are to the offline world. So in the offline world, children are very much at the centre of laws and regulations and are considered quite strongly through concepts such as welfare of the child or the best interests of the child. And there's a big focus um, in other areas of the law, um, for example, with regards to medical treatment or other decisions about a child. It's very much about what's in the best interests of this child, and that's put first in the online world those concepts don't seem to come into play. So there seems to be a disparity between the online and offline world. So in the offline world, we've got norms around how we treat children and trying to put them first and be very considerate of children's rights. And then we get into the um, online world. And those norms don't seem to translate. And we seem to um, have completely different standards and now actually privacy intrusion seems to be quite a social norm and the practice of sharinging and making everything very public um, is very ordinary and we wouldn't necessarily think of that as ordinary if we were in the offline world.
0: One thing that occurs to me when you say that we is we've, we've seen the courts quite regularly refer to the best interests of the child, for instance, as a test, even in cases clearly to do with privacy rather than to do with proceedings under the Children's Act or anything like that. Um, I'm thinking of cases like um, K okay, and newsgroup newspapers, for example, um, where we have the It wasn't to do with sharenting, but you had children who would have been affected by adverse publicity to do with an an extramarital affair of the parent. And the Court of Appeal in that case looked very much at the best interests of the child when determining whether to grant injunctive relief to the parent to prevent publication, which ultimately the court did. When you say the best interests of the child is a standard test in the offline world. I think there's plenty of evidence for that. Um, But I'm struck by what you say, that this isn't something that really seems to take hold in the online world. Is that because the law is not keeping up with the nature of online social interaction? Or is it because either the social media companies, or indeed the parents themselves, are applying a different set of social norms.
1: I think it's both of those things that you mention. I think in one respect technology and digital the digital world moves very, very quickly and it's always changing and it's very difficult for law to keep up with technology and often the law seems to be quite reactive so it's not necessarily until there's a problem that the regulations will then get put in place and the laws that are most applicable within the circumstances that we're discussing are ones that weren't necessarily designed with these circumstances in mind so for example the case you mentioned about privacy and other cases about privacy to do with the taking of a photograph and that being published in a newspaper for example it's a different set of circumstances to social media um, social media has a different remit and it can things can just escalate and get retweeted or shared very, very quickly um and it only takes 40 characters or just a couple of clicks for things to be out there and it's also made things very much more within the home um because a lot of it is then carried out by parents um who are then sharing that information whereas a lot of the cases we've seen it's perhaps been um a newspaper group mm. or company who are the ones that are doing the privacy intrusion. Um, I think there is also a responsibility that needs to be taken by the social media platforms themselves. Um, Within the research conducted at the Centre for Information Rights at the University of Winchester, it's been suggested that uh, a duty of care should be placed upon social media companies um, with regards to Uh, children and this should help to raise the standards uh, so that they have to take more responsibility themselves and it shouldn't all necessarily fall to parents the actual um, platforms of social media themselves should be taking the responsibility Um, in terms of the uh, what you mentioned about there being a different culture online I think that's uh definitely the case. I think there's certain behaviours that people adopt online that they wouldn't do so if they were in their offline capacity. Um, so I think when people are online it's very easy to forget that the world is still watching you. Um, and it's very easy now for social media companies to collect data um and obviously there's concerns about what will happen with that data and everyone who um uses um the internet or social media sites regularly will have a digital footprint and there'll be someone there who can follow that digital footprint um so you have this online identity um and I think people forget that that is there um So people are much more open to perhaps sharing information because it actually feels a lot more private than it really is.
0: Now, social media in the kind of Facebook, Twitter sense, Instagram, I guess, these days as well, is something that we're all pretty familiar with. Um, But one thing that I I was struck about... um, in the research that you presented when when we first met a couple of years ago was uh, the phenomenon of YouTube families um, where we have, for anyone who's not encountered uh, these things, um, families who document in video their entire lives, um, including the lives of the children of the family and upload it to YouTube um, as, you know, ultimate reality television. Um, And this obviously is done in in no small part for profit because uh, these are enormously popular, it seems, with viewers and the families that post this uh, are able to obtain uh, profit through advertising revenue through YouTube. Um, And I I, I recall one episode, a clip that you you, you showed us where the father of this YouTube family was, as ever, going around with his video camera and um, talking to his daughter and teasing her about a boy at school. Uh, And she, on camera, objected to being filmed and said, Dad, turn it off. Uh, Words to that effect. Um. And I'm just struck by this because that was not something I'd thought about when we talk about sharenting. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, yes, I get it, parents, pictures of kids. But clearly there are circumstances in which the level of intrusion is much more constant than a few photographs of special events. Um uh, 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 uh and, and a much more significant intrusion into the the child's lives.
1: Yes, I think there's definitely different versions of sharing and different levels of intrusion. Um so when we talk about sharing and we use that word, I don't think we're necessarily always talking about the same thing that sharenting itself can happen in many different forms um, and i think the example you mentioned there about youtube families is one that is a much more intrusive version of sharenting and in my opinion somewhat exploitative because there is a profit making aspect to it um the term micro celebrity is a term that has Become associated um, with this type of behaviour. Um, so micro celebrity um, is a termed uh, term that's been coined to refer to individuals who will use technology um, such as webcams or blogs or blogs or social networking in order to generally increase their own online presence and to Get an online popularity and by doing this and the reason for this is that once you build up the following um, if you're successful you can start making money off of that um, so it can be very lucrative you can have companies that are paying particular individuals to act as brand ambassadors or uh, you can have product endorsement deals with big organizations so if you've got a large following on YouTube or Instagram, then it's going to help you to be able to get those deals. For uh, situations where there's children involved, this is quite concerning um, because there's potentially children who are appearing within these social media posts or within these uh, YouTube channels who are imperative for being there because they are the stars that's what draws in the following so the parents are obviously wanting their children to be within that um, but the children don't necessarily understand what's going on or if they do understand what's going on they're not necessarily given a choice about that Uh, so if you've got a brand deal with um, a baby clothing company you're obviously going to need the baby to appear in the YouTube um, posts or the Instagram posts in order to make the the advertising um, effective. Um, So a scholar called uh, Crystal Aberdeen has used the term micro-micro-celebrities to refer to the children of uh, micro-celebrities. Children can get their own celebrity status in their own right. Um, And this, in some instances, this even happened before, children are born um so if there's a micro celebrity so a let's say for example an influencer mother who's got quite a big following she might then start a hashtag with that refers to her child or start her own twitter handle Um, and there have been situations where there's children who um still have a following while they're still in the womb um so they're kind of born into this situation. Um, with regards to the YouTube families, they're particularly can be particularly exploitative in the fact that there's no regulations around that. It's very much a new phenomenon. And um, the one you mentioned was uh, a piece from the Shaytards who are an American YouTube family. Um, and the episode episode is called Dad Cut That Part Out. And um, it's very, very clear within that episode that the child does not want to be filmed because she's embarrassed and she runs away. She hides from the camera and her father follows her even under the bed to try and get images of her and get footage of her. Um, But she repeatedly says that she wants this particular bit cut out because she's referring to um a boy that she likes at school and she's embarrassed about it but he gives her no choice and he actually says oh this is really good footage um and it's very clear within that episode as well that she is aware of the fact that there are a lot of people watching so she understands how it works and she couldn't have made it more clear that she didn't want to be filmed but there was nothing that she could do and another concern with this type of um sharenting is the fact that it's entirely unregulated and we have other situations where children are filmed in um movies or television series we have child actors Uh, Mm. that's quite different because that is regulated there are rules around the number of hours that children can work um there's rules around licenses that have to be sought Uh, YouTube families falls outside of that. So this means that children can essentially be working, if you could see it as work, um, 24-7. There's no regulation saying, okay, you need to switch the cameras off now. They can be going all the time. Um, There's also no uh, regulations or limits on the amount of footage that can be uploaded. So we can end up with children that are kind of just living in this situation every day. Um, and often this is because it's done for money. And um, if it's successful, um, you can actually give up your job if it's very, very lucrative. And being a YouTube family could, as a parent, become your entire job.
0: Yes, I think the point about regulation that you make is a, a really important one. It's probably not one that we tend to think about when we think about sharenting. But if one conceptualises the children as actors starring in a reality show about their own lives, then one would think that certain rights and protections come with that, just as they would with child TV and film stars. Um Is it that the rules and the laws that we have on this do not apply in these circumstances, or is it that we have no obvious way of enforcing them?
1: The current rules don't seem to apply, um, and the child actor rules seem to be very much a separate thing, and they've not chosen to add in this issue of youtube families um that seems to be something that's separate um but because of the fact it's separate it's been left really entirely unregulated um i don't know if part of the problem could be the fact that they are very popular there's a huge following of lots of youtube families because it's very entertaining
0: Um, Mm.
1: so there's a lot of maybe positive interaction around it because people enjoy watching um youtube families and also the children that are appearing in youtube families are maybe not necessarily in a position to question it or maybe they're not old enough perhaps it's going to be once they become adults that they might start to question it or alternatively if that's how they've grown up to them it might just be quite normal and that might be something that they don't ever question because that's just the life that they were born into and seemed very ordinary. Um, And then in which case, that kind of privacy intrusive norm will pass on to their own children as well.
0: Hmm. Now, one thing I wanted to ask you about, because it's come up a couple of times in what you've been saying, is this issue of consent and the point at which children can consent or withdraw their consent to having their information shared. And related to that is the role that parents play in determining a child's consent. Um, you said early on that the law on misuse of private information <laughs> gives the actions of the parent uh pivotal role in determining whether the child has a reasonable expectation of privacy. Um, And that brings to mind cases like the AAA case um, where uh, there was a I've got to be careful what I say around election time, there was a politician whose uh, alleged loved child um, was uh, the subject of a Uh, uh, an exposé in uh, a publication. The information about that had come from the child's mother who disclosed the child's true um, parentage uh, to a, a journalist at a country retreat one weekend. Uh, and the court held that the child's expectation of privacy and respect of of the identity of their father was much reduced because of the mother's action in revealing it to a journalist. Um, And this has given rise to um, the suggestion that, um, or at least the understanding in law, that if a parent does something uh, that exposes the child's to an, an, an intrusion upon their private life, then um, that goes against the child in terms of the child being able to establish a reasonable expectation of privacy. To what extent does parental action reduce the child's expectation of privacy uh, uh, in the law Um, and how can that be dealt with when we're looking at online interactions?
1: As you say, looking at the current legal framework around privacy, it does appear to be very dependent on the parent's behaviour. So if the parent, like in the instance you mentioned, has gone to a journalist, then the child is almost less entitled they have less of a reasonable expectation of privacy so applying that to a social media type situation it then seems that if the parents have shared a lot of information then that child on that principle also has uh, less privacy protection however when those cases were being discussed, they were obviously in a different context to the one that we are talking about now. So we're kind of left without a clear regulation. Um, but within the research um, that we've undertaken, we've made a recommendation um, which is that children should actually have a privacy right that's independent from their parents' privacy expectations, because this would mean that actually the child would be able to get privacy protection regardless of their parents' behaviour. And that would hopefully um, also help to address this um, kind of cultural um, norm around sharing as well. It would help to maybe educate parents um, and society that children are entitled to have this protection.
0: It's it's perhaps slightly mean of me, but if I may, I'd like to just play devil's advocate for a moment with that particular suggestion. So if the child has a privacy right that is entirely independent of the actions of the parent, does this present a problem for tort law um, in terms of its contextual awareness. Tort law is heavily context-sensitive. And particularly on privacy, it uh, it is just that. So when a parent does something that has the effect of reducing a child's expectation of privacy, yes, there is an interference with the child's right, but the factual context of that has fundamentally changed is the law, not simply reflecting the fact that the child has less privacy as a matter of fact, in those circumstances, because of what the parent has done. And if we grant the child a reasonable expectation of privacy, notwithstanding the actions of the parent, are we not divorcing the legal norms from the context in which we're trying to apply them?
1: Yes, I think that when we talk about privacy, as you say, it is the way it's treated in the law at the moment is it's very dependent upon the context in which we're talking about. And I think in terms of granting um, along with our uh, in line with our recommendation granting children a privacy right independent from their parents privacy expectations there is um, perhaps some challenges in doing that in the sense that is it even possible to make that happen um, because it's quite difficult I think to actually separate um, the parents privacy rights and the child's privacy rights in some instances, um, because children are inextricably tied up with their parents and their lives sort of run alongside each other. Um, Mm. And this is something that actually has come up with regards to um, parents who engage in um, parent blogging. Um, So there's a lot of blogs out there now where uh, parents record their lives as a parent or they discuss ideas and share experiences with other parents through blogs and in order to do that it's very difficult not to mention your children Um, and you could say that that is breaching their privacy in some way but then what they're doing could be seen as a very positive activity because It could be used as a way to help new mums reach out to a community, stop them being so isolated, look for parenting advice online. Um, So there are a lot of positives with something like that, but it's very difficult if you're a parent blogger to um, not mention your children because it's related to the activity that you're doing. So I think if we're going to entirely separate privacy rights of parents and of children it's something that is a very good idea in theory and I like to think it could work in practice but it might not necessarily be realistic in every context um, because those rights of the parent and the child are often tied together.
0: And I wonder if It raises a bigger question about the extent to which reasonable expectation of privacy for anybody should be tightly fact-dependent on the context in which the alleged um, expectation of privacy arises, as opposed to it being an expectation that is in effect, imposed by law in much the same way that a negligent duty of care arises not only on the facts for a given case, but is imposed in some circumstances by law on policy grounds, um, on the basis that, all things considered, it would be a good idea to have a duty in this situation. Um, and I wonder if as our still very young um, Taught, uh, our privacy taught with of private information as that develops whether it could look to examples from say negligence law a much older talk um, for inspiration as to how to deal with that particular conundrum
1: Yes I think that this has just fallen into privacy law because that's the perhaps most closely related um, area of regulation that we have. Um, but actually, maybe there are a number of other ways that this could be looked at within the law, so perhaps tort law or perhaps other areas of law, um, because it does seem to be that privacy law hasn't been designed for this issue. Um and just because there's a privacy issue, it seems to have fallen within that remit when actually, yes, perhaps there's some uh, another way this could be could be done. So if we're going to start talking about social media platforms having a, a duty of care or if we talk about what the parent duty of care is in this, then perhaps actually we yeah maybe should be looking more of a negligence framework to see if that would provide any assistance within um, within this context and see whether it would help to provide children with any enhanced protection.
0: Indeed. Well, we are left with an awful lot to think about. Um, but thank you very much, Emma, for joining us today.
1: Uh, thank you very much for having me.
0: You're very welcome. Um, we will be back in due course um but until next time it's uh goodbye from emma it's goodbye from me